Hello and welcome back to Over the Top Football. I'm joined as always with John. John, how are you doing this morning? All good, Rob. All good. Looking forward to the Premier League season. Less than two weeks, which is exciting. Just embracing myself in the madness, which is the transfer window. I was thinking it's probably the maddest transfer window I've seen in my time, just with all the new dynamic that's been brought into it. Uh, How's things with you? Yeah, well, good, thank you. Um, I agree. I think uh, the transfer window has kind of become more FIFA-esque than ever. Uh, certainly some some strange moves. And actually, I've been enjoying some of the goals from the Women's World Cup as well. Uh, Brazil scored a very nice one. And I thought the story behind the Caicedo goal the other night was really good as well. Yeah, the Caicedo goal was insane. Um, but yeah, there's been a few. I've sort of dropped a bit of interest with Ireland uh, going out now, but it was a good, gutsy performance from them um, with a number of standout performers. England are sort of coming into the tournament at this point. Lauren James looks like she's performing really, really well, but yeah, there's been some unbelievable goals and um, interesting to see where things will go. It's interesting to see what big teams might drop off in the group stage as well because it won't get as much publicity as the men's game, but Germany looked like they're struggling a little bit at this point. Yeah, I think um, whole whole competition's lining up quite nicely. I think sometimes in um, the women's game you can see like a huge divide between the top teams, but I think um, and the bottom teams. But I think yeah, certainly if you look at England's first game, kind of narrow first one nil win, for example, I think uh, a lot of teams have done themselves good credit here. And yeah, I'm excited to see it get to the knockouts. Hundred percent. What are we talking about today, Rob? So our main topic for today is to discuss how to improve football. Um, Honestly, since we started this pod, I think this is one that I was keen to have a bit of a rant about, a bit of a discussion about, because I don't know about you, John, but maybe it's just getting older, maybe it's getting grumpier in life, but I feel like football is getting worse. There are several reasons behind that, that whether it just be astronomical amounts of money, so disconnection with the fans, um, or things like the quality of the product, I think, is going down in many ways. Like, certainly, we get brilliant attackers, but it seems like the ball's in play for less time than ever. There's more complaining than the, at the ref than ever. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to have a bit of a discussion where we both brought five topics to the table about how we could improve football. Um, Because I feel like football is put in charge of a few governing bodies and a few people when really it's a sport for the fans. So this is a good forum for us to discuss our opinions and discuss what we think we can improve. Yeah, 100%. And you're right. I mean, football, when we were kids, isn't the same as it is now. I mean, tough tackles are not applauded anymore. They're immediately booked. Um, it's all about the attacking game rather than appreciating the defensive side of the game as well. So, And then obviously you've got the aspect of new technology and increased publicity of players and um, and sort of viewership as well. So it, the whole game's completely changed since we were kids and since we sort of immediately and started to fall in love with the game. So it's a whole new concept. It's a whole new dynamic. And um, it's about figuring out what can we do relatively quickly as well. I, I think a lot of mine would be relatively sort of quick wins, or wins from my perspective anyway. People will not see it that way, but quick changes we can make that we think would improve the game for the fans. Yeah, definitely. Um, so with that, uh, lead me with your first uh, pick, please. Yeah, so sort of starting in on crazy season, which is the transfer window, and some of the figures that we're seeing for players going to you know, the Saudi teams is absolutely insane. So whenever we're talking about Mbappe about or you know, being offered around seven hundred million to sign a one year contract, that's when you know football's went a bit nuts. Uh we were watching the quarterback documentary last night and um my wife asked me, you know, are they not as well paid as footballers? And I was like, No, no, they're well far, far, far better paid. And then I Googled it and they're not, and football's went a bit nuts in terms of the commercial side of things. First thing I would do is, and not to look at it in regards to trying to 
stunt the growth of the Saudi league. But even to implement within certain leagues could be within Germany first with the fan uh, dominance there in terms of the ownership model. But there does need to be some form of salary cap brought into the game. It's just becoming a little bit too stretched, um, too video game-like in terms of some of the figures that are being offered to players that just are not worth that amount of money. And, you know, even if you capped it at something like 350 grand a week in the Premier League, that's still a lot of money. It's still a lot that you will attract the top, top talent, but it's not going beyond, you know, what is absolute madness. So even 300 grand, but there does need to be something put in place around maybe financial fair play, around the commercial deals that are brought into the leagues and the ability to grow um, sustainably. And I think a salary cap is something that should be looked at. There's been certain aspects of certain models put in place historically in the past within the MLS, for example, where you would have three or four players who could be on X amount and the rest would not be able to exceed sort of a standard amount of money within the league. But I think there just needs to be something put in place that allows clubs to ensure that it's not being forced upon them to offer their players an exponential amount of money to keep them at the club, never mind sort of prevent interest from other from other leagues and other clubs across the globe yeah so i i I agree to be honest the eye watering amounts of money the thing is you can't if you're a business head you can't really say that you want to stop economic uh conditions because yeah it's it's slightly unfair to the players the players would be in uproar about this um i don't think we're saying produce a particularly limiting salary cap i just think we want it to be realistic because one of the big problems is is that so many people are getting priced out of going to football games now i live in london um going to watch spurs if it's a season tickets the highest ones are about two grand like it is so much money that i can't justify on okay like not not like bottom wages, but not brilliant wages either. I can't really justify myself to that paying that amount of money. And really, um, host of a football podcast and lifelong Spurs fan, I should be one of those fans in that stadium every week. So I think that's probably the the bigger issue is that the money is all going into wages and a lot of the times as well into trying to stay competitive. It's putting the future of clubs at risk. The amount of teams who we've heard in the past few years who would have... uh, gone into financial ruin had they not got promoted to the Premier League is almost scary. Yeah. Yeah, and you hear about whenever relegations do take place, you don't hear about the backroom staff or the staff behind the scenes. A lot of them are unfortunately made redundant and stuff like that, but it's because they can't shift the bigger wage earners from the player side of things because no one wants them because a lot of the time these wages are beyond reasonable at some cases and what we're saying is yeah we're not saying cap it at 100 grand a week and that will start to detract some of the biggest names in the world from coming to the premier league for example we're saying around 300 grand a week 350 would be a good starting point before there's something put in place that would sort of review the amount of capital coming in and then what's sustainable from a organizational growth and break-even perspective to offer that amount of money to ensure the clubs don't go into financial ruin again there just needs to be something put in place i think the numbers coming into the game at the minute are a bit laughable and um they're just a little bit too much to even stomach from a fan's perspective yeah yeah i think um one of the, the big things about that as well is it can go up every year. Just because you put a salary cap in doesn't mean that it has to be permanent. You can review it, you can change it. But I don't think there's many players who still wouldn't want to play football if they were earning 300 grand a week. So I I very much agree with this one. I think it could work. And hopefully as well, the other side of it is that it brings a bit more competition. Like it is phenomenally hard to be competitive in a league if someone's paying 10 times your wage cap. Wages are are like one of the most influencing factors on your league position. If you look mm-hmm. at the table, most years there's hardly any variance between um, the overall salary budget of a team, wages wise, and their final league placing. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is as well, 
if you have a salary cap, you have a maximum earner of 300 grand a week. You're seeing the likes of United in, in previous seasons bringing Cristiano Ronaldo in for a reported 550 grand a week. And then all of the other players within the squad want their wages increased. So there's there's numerous players in there. Drogba, I think, was around on around 350, 400 grand a week to get close to Ronaldo. Same with De Gea. Um, and it just means that all of the wages below that top player bracket also decreases and decreases the overall wage packages within the clubs and makes it more sustainable going forward and makes it more commercially viable for organisations to be able to spend money in the transfer window as well, which is, as fans, what we want to see. Definitely. Okay, so we'll move on to my uh, first point, which hopefully this, to be honest, is just a straight agreement and doesn't need too much talking on. It would almost be time-wasting to talk on this time-wasting, but it's a clamp down on it because it's just ridiculous. One of the things I hate the most is, obviously, when a team is 1-0 up with about 85 minutes on the clock, the goalkeeper takes forever to take his goal kick, and then, as a punishment for taking forever to take his goal kick, the referee then goes over and gets out his yellow cards for which he's had to run half the field to go do. So you basically just end up in a situation where they've wasted time and they get rewarded. Fair enough, you get a yellow card, but how often goalkeepers get yellow cards? Um, They basically get another yellow card that they'd effectively take. So it just wastes way, way, way more time. We've all seen the stats this week of, I think the ball was in play in the Premier League for something like 52, 55 minutes. Um, I'm very glad that they're bringing the World Cup style uh, extra minutes back on time to time to tie, try and discourage it. But I think there's more stuff that you can do on the field as well. So just one thing I think should happen is a shot clock. We know goalkeepers are allowed 15 seconds on their goal kicks. It should be put on the screen in the stadium, certainly at Premier League level, for everyone to be able to see. It should count down 15 seconds. And if the goalkeeper goes above 15 seconds, there should be an automatic yellow card there. You can do exactly the same for free kicks and for throw-ins. And I think that would significantly reduce the amount of time spent watching football where you're not actually watching football. Yeah, yeah, all fair points. I think the guy operating the stop clock would be a bit busy throughout the game um so he might need a pay raise talk but about it's salary a, cups but it can be done automatically like it can be just loaded onto the screen you've got 15 seconds everyone in the stadium can see you start seeing a bit of fan engagement around the fact that the goalkeeper's taken 13 seconds on the board um yeah yeah and we we're no, using technology to do goal line and things like that why can't we put a very simple clock on a digital screen yeah, you're not, you're not wrong. I think you're right in terms of you know time wasting is rewarded at the minute because you can waste all the amount of time you want and you know that the maximum amount of time added on will be six minutes. Whereas in the World Cup, we saw that dynamic change a bit and that's something that a lot of fans were excited to see being brought back into the club game because say you're 1-0 down and all of a sudden there's 11 or 12 minutes added on. That's an immediate boost to the team trying to get back into the game and that will ride up the fans. So it will deterrent other teams from wanting to waste time because the last thing you want to see when you're 1-0 up is 11 or 12 minutes added on to the to the clock so i think it's a, it's a good one um it also you know from a fan perspective we'll see more football we'll see more action uh, there'll be less time with the ball out of action and more actually being played on the field so i don't see where the negatives are on that one nice do you want to move on to your next pick yeah, so sort of still following on from the transfer window. Um, my head is very much in Twitter at the minute and embroiled in all of the different transfer rumours and everything like that. Still hoping we're going to sign a few more centre midfielders and, and defenders. But for me, I obviously love what David Ornstein and Fabrizio Romano do in terms of keeping fans up to date, right? I would love a few more shocks and go back a little bit to find out that you know, a, a team has signed a player from Teletext. But the big question for me as I continue to look at the transfer window this time around and, and in previous windows as well is, you know, wh- where's tapping up gone? Where has the rules against being able to talk directly to a player or his agent before agreeing a fee with the club has gone? It positions the club in a very difficult situation with transfers at the minute where, for example, Harry Kane, right? Everybody knows that Harry Kane has probably agreed terms with Bayern Munich. 
Um, everything's been agreed upon. He knows what wages he's going to get. He knows what signing on fee he's going to get. He knows what bonuses he's going to get. And now it's up for the clubs to negotiate a fee to try and get that over the line, right? That seems backward to me. That player's under contract. He shouldn't be discussing terms of Bayern Munich. It should go back to the way it was in terms of if you want to talk to a player, you agree a fee with the club. And then from there, you can gauge the interest from the player. Don't get me wrong, there's always going to be back-channeling with the agents to say, is this something you might be up for? Yes or no, right? And that's maybe as far as you're allowed to go. If there's any financial packages discussed or anything in terms of contract terms discussed, then that's a breach of, of rules, in my opinion. And it takes away the excitement and it takes away the integrity to a lot of these transfer deals from a, it's putting all of the power in the player's hands. Because once they know what they're going to get and once they know that they're going to increase the terms that they're on today, they can force through a, a sale and force through a move. And it just feels like the, the control is all out of the club's hands now. And it's fully in the hands of the players and the agents. And it's becoming more of an agent's game, the transfer window. And that's where I think the power needs to be removed from. It needs to be removed from the agents back onto the clubs and make it more of a transactional-based window rather than agents forcing moves through because they're able to go and talk to anybody and everybody around a player's availability wage demands and then force through a move from there so it just all feels a bit wrong and i just don't know when tapping up wasn't a thing anymore and when fines and breaches went out the window because you know when we were growing up watching football if you tapped a player up it was a significant fine a significant breach and there was transfer bans financial bans um, financial fines and I just don't know maybe I completely missed it but I don't know where that's gone and why it's gone yeah I I don't disagree obviously with the Kane saga at the minute that's just going to keep rolling on until Levy gets a fee that he wants um, yeah I actually had a little think about this when I saw you kind of put it in the notes and I did wonder if everything could be better if there was just a two-week window so Clubs would have to register to UEFA or whatever competition they're part of and say, we are interested in this player. And then they're just given a flat two weeks to negotiate and try and do the deal. That feels like a fair amount of time. And it just avoids us having some of these boring, boring sagas where they just roll on. And if you go beyond the two weeks, then you're not allowed to negotiate with that player again um, this transfer window. I think that would be... It seems fair and it just seems that some of the boring narratives, we're not just talking about Kane, we're talking about Mbappe. How many times have we seen Frankie de Jong linked to Manchester United? Like The amount of times these things seem to happen and roll on is one of the most boring things about football. And I think it's an easy solve. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. What's next on your list? So I have FIFA and UEFA to have more limited controls. Um, obviously, they're two of the biggest bodies. They have been proven to be corrupt bodies as well, which isn't exactly great. And I just feel like um, if you've ever seen that Mitchell and Webb sketch where he's like, it's all of the football, all of the time, football, football, football. My God, do these two organisations get greedy and just want to do more. And more does not mean better. The changes to the Champions League next year, I'm not particularly looking forward to, particularly when you're going to have some fifth place teams then qualify in the Champions League just because. Um, the bigger World Cup, that one I actually get. Like It will be fun to see some teams having their first crack at the tournament and stuff. But you can't just do a bigger World Cup without conceding somewhere else. Um, so yeah, I think there needs to be an independent body who can just block some of their moves. Um, and it should be represented for um, by by clubs and players because clubs are just forced upon um, all of these changes for them. And actually, there's no one really looking out for the player welfare here. Like if FIFA want to go and have an extra competition or two um, and they want to do more things with the Club World Cup, there needs to be a advisory player board that says, yeah, you can do that, but actually you can't have these five players play because they've played too much football already this year. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point in terms of potential cap and the amount of games players can have for their own well-being. Um, but you're Even right, for our term. well-being, John, we've yeah. got to talk about all these games. There's too much of it. I know, I'm 
definitely going to end up in divorce the amount of games that I have to watch for this <laughs> podcast to educate myself. Um, but yeah, it's it's insane. The the random decision making. Um, and I, I think as well, at the same time, you know, we're talking about how games can be improved or how the game can be improved for fans. I don't think fans' perspective are ever brought into it. Decisions are made randomly for whatever reason. Um, there's no form of fan engagement or due diligence or process around these decision-making processes and because of the stories in the background you know we don't really know why these are being made or why they're being enforced but anytime we see interviews players don't seem overly happy about any of it no well i think if they were being honest so many more of them would call it a job um obviously we've seen it kind of creep in the difficulties the pressure the social media all of these elements and yeah i think when you're doing so much of something, it becomes significantly less enjoyable. Yeah, hundred percent. And we don't want to see a game full of, you know, Asuakaro type of personalities where football is a job and nothing else. You know, football is enjoyable. It's they should be doing it because they love it. It's their first love, and we want to see that passion. And I think if you continue to force these decisions upon the players, then you're going to see that passion dwindle a little bit, and then that will will become evident to fans and that will be the same then as well it's sort of closely linked to my third point um especially for fans i mean i i don't know whether it's because republic of ireland are absolutely horrendous at the minute but i i hate international football like i hate it with the passion but mainly i hate it when it interrupts the premier league season um, and when it there's just random friendlies in november and march and all of a sudden you're back to the start of the premier league season and then there's random internationals the first week of September. It is my biggest haters in the sport is random international football interrupting the league season. And for me, yeah, so annoying. it's no fan likes it. No fan enjoys it. And you're losing interest in international football because the amount of games being pushed and peddled. So one of my recommendations was scrap the Nations League. It's an absolute nonsense. Players don't care about it fans don't care about it it's added games that are unnecessary to the old already um high load of the players already have in regards to the amount of games that they play but you need a different format in terms of international campaigns you should not be taking players out of the club four to five times a season putting them at risk from a club perspective of injury these are players that you're playing on a weekly basis that you're relying upon to win new leagues, win new cups, keep you in a job, you know, keep you away from the relegation zones. And they could just immediately be injured at international level and be out for the rest of the season under no control of yourself. My recommendation would be in a season where there's no international tournament. So next season, for example, there is no international football from the start of the league until the end of the league. This league would start as it already does first or second week of August. It would finish mid to late April with Champions League, FA Cup towards the start of May, right? From the middle of May until the first end of the first week of June. So three weeks straight, you'll have an international football style tournament where your qualifiers will be played, maybe six games in three weeks, whatever it might be. And you will have one squad of players for the entirety of the season. And the call-up will be based on performances from the whole season rather than, you know, Harry Maguire or Jordan Pickford going away with England six times a season and performing well. It's based on players' performances for the entirety of the season and based on merit rather than favouritism. So you'll have August to the end of April in terms of the league season, Champions League the first week of May, international fixtures kick off middle of May until the end of the first week of June, and then the players will get a month's break. And players nowadays do not get a month's break players when we were growing up used to get a month's break all the time um, and it also means that you could potentially bring in a Christmas break for players and staff even if that's a week or two because you will have reserve time that's previously been used up with unnecessary international friendlies that would be for when there isn't an international tournament alternatively if there was an international tournament you could have a three-week period during the Christmas break where you would have international players called up to international duty and playing six games over the course of three weeks from the first or second week of December up until around New Year's. And that would mean that 
more players will get Christmas at home, which is what everybody complains when they retire. International players will get those games out of the way, come back where there's already a Christmas break in a lot of the European leagues and be able to then focus on the rest of the season until that international tournament is taking place in the June time. And it provides, again, more control over the wellness and the well-being of the player back to the clubs who pay their wages rather than on unnecessary international breaks where, you know, I just don't think even the players enjoy it at this point. Yeah, cool. I, I to be honest, hard to not agree with it. Um, yeah, I think the international football schedule has uh, got a bit ridiculous. But also, I think the quality would improve if you have them for a dedicated time. I think, possibly a hot take, but if the Champions League was every four years, I think it would be more prestigious to win a Champions League than it would be to w- win a World Cup. Because the quality of the football is so much higher because, A, uh, teams can pay for positions and try and fix them, which obviously you can't in international football. But B, they just train together consistently way, way more. I often think when I go and see international football, particularly early stages of a tournament, um, teams can often not look anything like as good as they should be on paper because these players just don't have the chemistry. They don't have the moods and the synergy together. So... I agree. Um, it'd be interesting to kind of see. And I know uh, Arsene Wenger at FIFA has proposed something similar before. Yeah, I think Arsene Wenger's come out with a number of recommendations, some of which are a bit rogue, some of which are, are absolutely spot on. Um, but I think there's just some needs to be something done because, like I said, there's definitely fan interest being lost from an international football perspective. And I think it's because of the dis- disruptions to league campaigns and club runs that are getting in the way of, of fans truly embracing the international game. Yeah. Okay, cool. So moving on to my next pick. Um, sorry, I've just gone off my notes for a minute. Um, so next up, I had one just to, to streamline the Premier League awards, talking of things that can be very instantaneous. Um Basically, I think we have so many different awards. FIFA have a lot to answer for for some of this stuff. Like FIFA, obviously, making EA now have to have EAFC so they can bring out their own game, um, having their own thing that isn't just the Ballon d'Or. Like, just go away. Um, but the Premier League has slightly divergent awards as well with the football writers with their own um So I would like to just see a consolidated Premier League awards um night and I think there's a case to kind of with obviously more football fans being educated on the game now with more stats being in the game I think you can um, give a few more awards out and that would increase kind of the narrative around things Um, yeah I think it would create quite a interesting um, both during the season and at the end of the season things for people so I know for example the Bundesliga does rookie of the year so it's someone who has to have played their first season in the league that year um that's kind of a separate award um you can look at things like uh best assister because I don't think we give out that at the minute um you could look at giving even kind of awards based on various different defensive actions attacking actions um but yeah it seems a waste at the minute when sometimes in particular, the Young Player of the Year is also the leading candidate for the Player of the Year award. Um, I think there's even things you can do kind of about encouraging interest in the younger players. For example, they can't be over 21 and they can't be in contention for the top award. So I think there's a little things that we can do to help improve the awards in the games. Um, and yeah, I think kind of more interest in stats has probably led to that. Yeah. Yeah, I just don't really zone in on the awards stuff that much. I agree with the Rookie of the Year stuff. I think that's useful because I think it was what Martin Odegaard was up for PFA Young Player of the Season last year. He's, what, 24 or something. And um, maybe I'm saying it because I'm significantly older than that, but I just don't think 24 should fall into the Young Player of the Year category. And it's taken away from the likes of what Evan Ferguson and stuff did last year. Um, So I think that's a good recommendation. I think... For example, PFA manager of the season, majority of the time, is just the manager who win the league, wins the league. So I think you should just give the manager who wins the league an award and then have PFA manager of the season for the rest of the managers who you know, finishing from 2nd to 20th. I'm guessing if you're, you finish 20th, you're not going to win it. 
but you know what I mean. Um, so I, I don't really zone in on the award stuff too much, um, mainly just because I think I, I for one certainly lost interest in the Ballon d'Or quite a long time ago when it was just repetitive between Messi and Ronaldo and it is being handed out by reporters as well. So I do take more of a, a focus on the PFA player of the year type of thing because it is voted for by the players rather than these random reporters. So, yeah, I think, I mean, I for one would focus on it too much. I know younger fans definitely do because it's then brought in to the likes of FIFA way more. So I think there definitely is something that could be done around the award side of things um, and maybe increase fan engagement as well. Yeah, well, I think it's a good time to say that should the Ballon d'Or want to consider OTTF for um, judging on the Ballon d'Or, we'd happily take it and we love that award. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm very happy to be the Northern Ireland um, voter, if that works, because I think Thogden is somewhere like Kosovo's voter. Don't know how that worked out. So I'll certainly take the Northern Ireland one and, um, and vote for Mo Salah every single year. Perfect. Do you want to hit us up with your next choice, please? Yeah, talking about further youth opportunity in regards to the Rookie of the Year, I went down the route, still keeping in with pre-season. Um, one of the biggest benefits to me and the enjoyable aspects of pre-season is seeing youth players coming through that we think might break through this year. I think we've certainly been exchanging messages about players that we think could have standout seasons this year, that many of which would have heard of last year. Um and I think there should be more of a focus whenever we're seeing the transfer packages being put in place for players to come into squads. There should be more definitive opportunities for youth players to come in and make a success for themselves at specific clubs. I mean, even if you look at City, for example, obviously they've lost Gundogan this year. They paid £25 million for Kovacic. <sighs> I mean, I, I would bet money that there's somebody who has way more potential within their youth setup than Kovacic. I'm not, I think Kovacic is good, but I, I just think there's an opportunity where you could have said, right, that's Phil Foden's position now, or we're going to give Cole Palmer an opportunity, or we're going to bring through Tommy Doyle um, and give him an opportunity in the first team. You know, I'm, I think that my recommendation is that within your match day squad, where I believe there's 11, 11 starters and potentially nine subs, five of which can be used, there should be minimum three players per squad every single match day that have been brought through the youth ranks at that club. So, for example, with Liverpool, it could be Trent Alexander-Arnold, uh, Curtis Jones, Harvey Elliott would not fit into that bracket because he was brought from Fulham. So maybe someone like Bobby Clark who'd be brought through, right? And that's your three criteria met. For other clubs, for United, it could be, uh, you know, I'll not pretend that I know the players, right? But say Dean Henderson, two others. Marcus Rashford counts for one and uh, Palestri or whatever it might be, right? It just means that there's definitely three youth players per matchday squad who will potentially get an opportunity to play and that will lead to further opportunities for youth players moving forward, not just for Carling Cup, FA Cup games, Europa League sometimes, but from a, a Premier League matchday squad potential. Um, it will lead to potentially further opportunities for fans to see players being given the opportunities because I know from a fan's perspective, I certainly would prefer to see a high-quality, high-potential youth player getting an opportunity rather than us signing somebody for 20 to 25 million who might do a job but may not. I'd rather take that risk on giving youth opportunity within the squad. Yep, agreed. I think it's one of the most exciting things when you get a youth player I think quite often as well, um, they get sold on for such a premium because they are so valuable to the clubs. I have no idea why with all these like gleaming youth academies, clubs don't take a risk on a player a bit more, particularly when your season's starting to come to an end. Like Tottenham last year, the last few games, it came pretty apparent we weren't really going to finish above seventh maybe. So why not just fling in a youth player or two for a few games? But yeah, yeah, I think this this would lead to something a bit more long-term, which I think could be really nice. Yeah, 100%. And then you don't have the problem, potentially, of players staying at a club for too long. I mean, we're seeing the likes of Max Ahrens, right, where he has been given opportunities in Norwich. and But from 18, 19, 
people were talking about him potentially making a move to Bayern, but that's because of the opportunity that he got within the first team. If we look at Trent Alexander-Arnold, uh, Nathaniel Klein got injured and we had no right back for a game against Man United and we just threw him in. And it's a sink or swim type of thing. But if you were to try and buy a Trent to, in today's market, you're talking 70, 80 million minimum. So even from an economic perspective, there is value within the youth setup, within the youth ranks. Players who are sitting there, you know, performing at an under-21 level, maybe having to go out on loan to get senior experience like Harry Kane did as well. And it's um, from a fan perspective, I would like to see way more youth players can given opportunities in real games rather than, and that's no disrespect on the Carabao Cup or FA Cup, but I would like to see these youth players playing alongside the senior players rather than playing in a team of youth players in a game that's deemed you know, unimportant to the club. Yeah. Okay, cool. So uh, next point I have um, is competition trickle down so effectively the premier league is actually one of the better leagues for this it's certainly worse in spain or even germany but um better sharing of tv money pots to give other teams a chance i think one of the most depressing things going into a new league season is just knowing you basically have absolutely no chance of actually winning um because there's a couple of teams who realistically do and that is going to be the status quo for the next few years I know we'll all point at Leicester, but it was quite literally once in a lifetime. Um, At this rate, I don't see that happening again. And fair enough, a team like Newcastle can come in and the financial fair play means they're having to do it properly, which is great. Like, it's great that they can't just come in and be instantaneously the best. However, let's make no mistake in five years' time or however long that horizon is, they will then be the big team that almost make it impossible for other teams to win the league. So I'd like to see a bit more of a share of the TV pot. And I think you can incentivize different ways of doing this. I think the, the issue at the minute is, for example, in La Liga, Real Madrid and Barcelona are just so much of the audience um, that they can basically just demand what they want. And if you don't give Real Madrid and Barcelona what they want and they threaten to leave your league, you're kind of left a bit stranded and a bit hopeless. So... I think you can incentivize things that are good for the game overall, and that could give teams um, a bit better share of the TV revenue. For example, as you've mentioned, if a team, for example, has 40% of their players are from their own youth academy, that's something that's generally good for the game. It's probably good for the league that they're a team out there developing talent in the league. That should be rewarded with, say, an extra couple of million per year in TV revenue. Um, if a team, for example, is one of the top goal scorers in the league, but ends up finishing like 16th or something, you could do some fun maths equations to kind of calculate for the fact that they're bringing more entertainment and more joy to the game. So I think there's a few little pieces like that that you can do. It needs proper kind of working out a proper team on it. But I think that could be really nice, really fun. And ultimately, it could make the leagues overall far more competitive. Yep. Nope, that works. That works definitely. I think from a La Liga perspective, especially, you know, we talk about Barcelona, Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid getting the fair share of TV revenue when it comes to their cut. And I mean, what benefit has that done to Barcelona from an economic perspective? They're an absolute mess. And um, it hasn't really rewarded them at all or, or benefited them long term. It just, they've splashed their cash and it hasn't really worked long term. So there should be definitely benefits for the likes of, you know, Valencia, Sociedad, Sevilla. Um, if you're, you know, Sevilla, for example, the fact that they won, what about 26 Europa Leagues in the last few seasons, um, they should be getting rewarded by La Liga because they're representing La Liga, the La Liga in a European tournament and excelling there. So they should be getting benefited from that. I think the top goal to score um, one is a really good idea as well. Um there, there could be loads of different ways in which it could be done in terms of fan engagement levels on social media or whatever it might be, or um, viewership models. I think that would probably feed into Barcelona and Real Madrid anyway, but there's definitely more stipulations that should be put in place in regards to the overall percentage takeaway from the TV packages that are there today across all leagues, not just La Liga. So I think that's a good point. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, do you want to hit me with your final one, which you said that you've prepared fantastically for? 
Yeah, the final. Um, I mean, that's you probably got pages and pages of notes. I have five notes, and it's just the titles of my f- five points. Hence, there's no stats or facts or background information on any of them. Um, a lot of it's just on top of the head. So that's that's preparation one hundred one from my perspective. Um, from a fan's perspective, and this one has been in my head the whole time, but. I just don't know where to start without going on a 30 to 40 minute rant here. Just scrap VAR. If you're not going to scrap it, just admit that it's not working and changes will be made. For example, with the offsides, there should be the dog track cameras at the side of the pitch to track offsides properly rather than relying on TV cameras in the stadiums and not having your own technology to make those decisions factually or accurately. Um, so from a, from my perspective... I would just love to see the VAR scrapped as a whole. If you're not going to scrap it, admit that it isn't working and implement a minimum of five improvements per season that will improve the experience of fans in the ground and at home and in regards to the amount of mistakes being made today by the officials on the pitch and in uh, Stockley Park or wherever they might be across the different leagues in Europe and the world. But it doesn't work today from a fan's perspective. It doesn't work from a supporter's perspective. It doesn't work from a player's perspective or a pundit's perspective. So you have to admit that it, it isn't working. And either you scrap it or you make minimum five improvements per season. And that should be based on admitting that this didn't work last year, that didn't work this year. Um, and this is what we're going to do moving forward to protect ourselves against those issues that might push people away from the sport that is football. Yeah, I think it's probably a good plug for our VAR episode. Make sure you go check that out. Um, it was a few weeks ago, a few couple of months ago. Um, if you haven't heard that, and there we kind of mentioned a few of the things that you could fix. For example, um, if it's not clear and obvious within 20, 30 seconds, move on. Um, we also said it'd be great to have kind of the refs mic'd up and it clear for everyone in the stadium exactly what the decision-making process is because often you're left oblivious and that really doesn't help anyone. Um, So I agree. I think it's difficult because VAR was talked about for ages or some form of it. And I think it's nice to want to innovate the game. Like we should never not want to do that and just do not do something because it's difficult to get right or you might not get it right immediately. Um, However, yeah, I do agree. I think there's plenty of ways to innovate it. And yeah, we should definitely be looking at all of those options or even temporarily pausing it and admitting that it's not right get it working at like a lower level of football and then come and bring it back yeah 100 percent. i mean i think the the hearing the decision making process is an important one as well i think that's absolute bare minimum that you could do in regards to letting the fans hear the discussions i mean if you think about it rugby here the decision making process and it's much much clearer and it leads to sometimes players being more polite as well on the pitch rather than screaming in the face of the referee. So it protects them a little bit and that they know that people are going to hear the, the conversations. Obviously the Premier League released a handful of occasions where they allowed fans to hear the decision-making process from an audio perspective. And that was, you know, lauded by the likes of Carragher Neville on social media and talked about how well that was done. And I mean, but they only released the ones that, the decisions were right so we didn't understand anything around some of the decisions that were wrong or some of the absolute howlers that were made last season because there were some absolute shockers as well so there can't be a case where you know they polish up the ones that they think they got right and then release those at the end of the season and then we all applaud them for doing it it, it was nothing last year and a lot of the pundits i don't know why they got on um to applaud them for it but there was nothing applaudable there from my perspective if you're going to do it, it should be an ongoing thing. It should be something that fans should immediately hear, give it a few seconds just to potentially block out any swearing or anything like that. But there should be immediate audio recordings available that could be played um, to fans watching the game from at home. Obviously, there should be more done in the stadium to let fans know what's going on as well. But that's trickier to manage. But I think especially for the the fans at home watching from on Sky Sports, TNT Sports, where the subscriptions are astronomical as well, there should be more insight provided on those types of decisions. Yeah, 
deplorable, not applaudable, for sure. Okay, yeah. my final point, and I know you're going to like this one because I've seen a few question marks from you, questions in our lads chat being like, where are they getting the money, man? Um, just actually just make financial fair play a proper thing. Like, come on, Chelsea spent 600 and something million last summer uh, they're spending pretty much all of the money that they're making this summer or planning to, and they're planning on making more signings. Like, it's just laughable at this point, um, what is and what isn't financial fair play. And it's frustrating because you see some teams, I mentioned Newcastle earlier, like they are doing it the right way. They have all mm. of the money in the world to throw at things, but they're do- they know that they're going to be highly monitored and they're doing it the right way. Like last year, they overachieved. They were ahead of schedule, ahead of the project. Like, very well done. Um, but it's biting Wolves this year. It's biting Sheffield United. Sheffield United, um, and fair play, it's because of overspend previously, but they're coming up and they don't have a hope this year now because they've just gone no. and sold their best player because of financial fair play. But they're competing in a league where a team's allowed to spend like a billion over two years and no one's saying anything about it. So mm. it's just frustrating. I like the idea of it. In fact, I actually did my dissertation on it after the first year. And I kind of came to the conclusion that done properly, it would actually make football more competitive because um, there was plenty of texts and plenty of arguments saying that basically you're removing the chance for your then high investment teams to come in and change the status quo. For example, your uh, Blackburns of uh, previous generations. However, done properly, it should make things a more even playing field. It should mean a better spread of talent. And it's just not, like, let's be honest, it is just not. You've got some teams who play by it, some teams who laugh in the face of financial fair play. And I think that all comes down to just how bad the punishments are. Um, yeah. Chelsea actually have been indicted with it before. They had a summer transfer window ban. Ultimately, it's not enough. It's just not enough for one year. Uh, the fines no. are laughable. They hit like PSG with things like 200 grand fines. Oh, yeah, brilliant. That's going to work. Um like, let's actually think about what should happen. And I kind of think one of the things that should happen is if a player is brought in and you cannot afford that player, that player is then admissible. You have, I don't know, a month to sell that player and he's admissible to go to any of your rivals or anywhere on the globe. And um, the price for that player is then set by a commission board. So you could see Chelsea, for example, bringing in Osimhen for Again, just an example. They buy him for 120 million, and as punishment for breaking financial fair play, he then gets touted off to the market for 90 million and ends up going to Manchester United or something. Like, let's bring in a punishment that actually is fit for the crime and really stops teams just abusing this system. Yeah, yeah, all accurate. I think Newcastle's a really good example that you pointed out because I know there's some clubs requesting clarification on the Allen to maximum um, transfer because they think that the fee was too high and it's it's messing around with financial fair play. Realistically, it's 25 million for Allen to maximum, a player who is probably worth double that last season. Um, so I think they're being pinpointed because there is such a big money pot in the background and whenever they build up their economic viability, you know, some of the ones, some of the, some of the things do need to be reviewed, right? In terms of the shirt sponsorship for a company that was founded last year, um, that type of thing, right? But, but you're, you're that, spot on. Their, their money deal for the shirt is twenty five million. Don't get me wrong; I'm not saying that they um, could necessarily find that sponsor somewhere else. But like Newcastle's numbers, at least look good. No, you're right, and I don't think they should be the ones being focused on because they, like we've said, they're doing it the right way, right? They've signed Tanali, they've signed a Hanford level, they've signed Harvey Barnes. Um, but immediately they knew that they needed to sell to be able to do that. And Eddie Howe came out and said, we need to sell Allen to maximum to fit under the financial fair play boundaries. So they're being very upfront and open in regards to the stances that they're taking. And, we, you know, they've done smart business. So we can't look there. I think Chelsea is the obvious one, right? I think they've been fined recently for financial fair play. But realistically, if you're going to spend close to a billion pounds over two seasons being fined 
a few hundred grand to a few million is absolutely nothing to you. There should be competitive restrictions, you know, prevention or, you know, European football ban for X amount of years, you know, at points deduction for X amount based on the amount of million that you went over the financial fair play budget as well. It's something that they're trying to bring into other sports like Formula One. They've got the cost cap as well, and they should be looking at financial fair play as more of a way to make the game more competitive, like you've said. And there does need to be way, way bigger fines. Even if you look at City, right? I know City, you're talking about what is 114 cases of financial fair play misconduct. That That's going to be a slap on the wrist, realistically, right? Nothing major is going to happen to them, which is sending the game into disrepute. Whenever you look at Sheffield United having to sell the top goal scorer to you know make sure that they don't get fined an astronomical amount because they might, if you know, if they got a significant fine, they might struggle to remain liquid. I don't know what their situation is, but it does need to be taken more seriously by the top teams and rules need to be enforced across all of the different leagues. Yeah. A slap in the wrist for Manchester City and a slap in the face to every football fan who has to just pretend that financial fair play isn't a thing for some clubs. Um, Okay, cool. That rounds up our episode today. Um, I think, John, we've got some very exciting ones in the works up and coming. I think our next episode will be Premier League Breakthrough Stars, so definitely one I'm looking forward to planning for. Yeah, for all of the fantasy football players, this could be one to listen into. Uh, we've been doing quite a bit of research over preseason, and we're going to come up with probably five players each. Oh, in terms of players that we think will break through this season, either from a young perspective or signings that have maybe gone under the radar as well. So this is what I'm excited about. I'm a big FPL fan, and I have a few of them in my team ready to go already. Perfect. Okay. As always, uh, we have been over the top football, managed to get our name right on the second take. Uh, (laughs) Pleasure as always chatting to you, John. You too, Rob. Have a good one. Chat soon. Cheers. Bye.